This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. The Climate Farmers community is the place to be if you're working towards regenerating your farmland and business and want to learn from other farmers who are on a similar journey. Now, Europe is a very diverse continent with significant differences in biomes, landscapes, climates, cultures, languages, and context. So rather than looking further abroad for solutions, connect with others who found solutions to the challenges that are unique to us here. We have a central community chat on WhatsApp where you can ask questions, share your own observations, and simply chat with others who don't think you're crazy. We also organize regular skill exchange calls where experienced farmers share their knowledge and answer listener questions. Increasingly, we're even bringing the community offline by organizing gatherings at farms all around Europe. So if you're actively farming anywhere in Europe, you can join for free today through the website at climatefarmers.org under the For Farmers tab and click on Join the Community. And there's also a direct link through the show notes for this episode. I look forward to seeing you there. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. So look, a couple weeks ago, I had a wonderful conversation with my good friend Harriet Mella the independent researcher from Austria who has helped to push the boundaries of soil science and plant physiological understanding. And we focused last time on how plants handle water stress, specifically drought and the management practices that can either help or inhibit their natural adaptation to this stress. And Harriet also made it clear that she had a lot more to say on this topic. And behind the scenes, we talked about how to frame another discussion. Now, in that time, I shared a link to research that was done by Dr. James White, which demonstrates how plants can absorb nitrogen from the atmosphere via enzymes in the stomata of their leaves, which I was blown away by. Anyway, of course, it turns out that Harriet is in close correspondence with James, and she suggested that we invite him to our next session to explore the newest discoveries and the experiments that they're both conducting. How could I say no to that? And so for that reason, here's a quick intro to Dr. James White just to get us oriented. So James is a professor of plant biology at Rutgers University in New Jersey, where he and students conduct research on ecology of microbes that inhabit plants known as endophytes. James White is the author of more than 270 articles and book chapters and author and editor of seven books on the biology of plant microbes. He is also an elected fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and associate editor for journals Symbiosis, Fungal Ecology, Mycoscience, Biology, and Scientific Reports, and also serves as the chief editor for the Plant-Microbe Interaction section of the MDPI journal Microorganisms, and has presented extensively at international industry and academic conferences focused on regenerative agriculture, plant biostimulants, and crop microbiomes. So as you can imagine, between James and Harriet, we get into some epic material. Now, though this session takes us in many directions, a couple of which I probably can't even pronounce correctly, the overarching theme that we explore is the working of plants and their symbiotic relationships with other organisms that help them to adapt and overcome stress in their environments. And we start by looking at this topic from the perspective of drought tolerance to wrap up the previous conversation, and then we expand from there. We even get into genetic adaptation, the problems with industrially produced seeds, and by the end we uncover a key piece of the puzzle that could help you to cut the time it takes to transition to regenerative management of your farm into a fraction. 
But rather than give away the plot, let's hear from Harriet Mella and James White. All right, welcome back, Harriet, and welcome for the first time, James. It's a pleasure to be speaking to both of you today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you. All right, so look, we had a really in-depth conversation with Harriet last time about how plants handle water, especially when under stress and drought. And we didn't get a chance to go through all of that information, but this opened up a topic that people are increasingly interested in as we're facing more and more severe weather patterns, uh, the effects of climate change, and all of these are starting to threaten farmers' yields and the health of their crops. So before we go into the wider topic about understanding the physiology and the function of plants so that we can perhaps make some management decisions or change our practices in order to favor their health, let's go over some of the things that, Harriet, you wanted to, to catch us up with in regards, to, especially to water handling, as we're in the face of, of droughts all over the place right now. What are some of the things that, that you left off last time? <laughs> you caught me there. I was just stuck in the opposite, actually. <laughs> I was just thinking about waterlogging because we have had quite a bit of rain here. Oh, no kidding. No kidding. <laughs> so. Well, this is all relevant, right? When we're talking about the water handling capacity of plants, it works on both extremes. What are some of the things that you've been finding out about how they react to water logging then to start us off? So the big surprise is when you think of water logging for the shoot, it's the same. The shoot experiences drought at the moment that the root gets low in oxygen. So what happens is that the metabolism kind of collapses. It goes into energy crisis because there is no oxygen anymore to, to produce energy. And then the shoot experiences drought. It's wilting. And this is completely crazy to understand that you see wilting plants with submerged roots, basically. I've actually seen this in my own garden, though, like after a really heavy rain, oftentimes the plants will wilt for a while until the water actually percolates through the soil and then they perk back up. Is yeah. that's what's happening here? Yeah, that's what's happening there. So, of course, this is if you have the water moving in the soil. So if you are on a, on a slope, this is not as pronounced or if the um, aggregation of the soil is really well, so the water percolates really quickly, or if you have a lot of wormholes. Um, but if you have water, especially in warm periods, with high organic matter in the soil and high microbial life, which consumes the oxygen quickly, then you see that problem to set in very, very quickly. So you know what this does? This um... This the first thing, this is it, it, it drives a nail in the coffin of, uh, of the simple model for uh, flow of water up from the through the into the roots up into the leaves, you know, through transpiration, right? It kind of suggests that, that that's maybe not the whole story there. Uh, that that yeah, water flows up there, but it's not just a phenomenon of. Uh, of uh, of evaporative uh, transport, you know, into the into the leaves, uh, suggests something else is going on. 
Yeah, because well, the, way, the what... simplistic way that I kind of understood it was that through the capillary action of the small tubes in the phloem and the xylem and the loss of moisture through transpiration in the leaves, it creates a low pressure system that kind of sucks water up through those capillaries within the plant and then they're, they're expired out the top. But it's much more complicated than that because if it was that simple, then oxygen wouldn't play as nearly a, a critical role in this, right? Mm -hmm. So what seems to happen is that if you have this collapse of energy metabolism, the cells become acidic and then the connection between the cells in the root that let the water pass through these little channels, little pores, they get gated. So the conductivity for the water to get into these capillaries of the xylem goes down. And it's a bit strange because it doesn't seem to make sense. But apparently the, 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 the wealth that the plant has, if it has energy left or not, there we come back to drought, can be decisive for survival, especially in trees. So if you have reserves of carbohydrates that can be broken down, the plant is still able to drive this water. Um, the German word is paternoster. You know, you go up and down on one side. So, and the moment that the energy expires in the plant seems to be when death is just imminent. And not the moment where you have really the water shortage. A much more active process than than just yeah. a simple model of you know evaporative flow you know it's uh, uh, the energy is uh, it's actually an energetic process then if you you know if you when you say gated are you talking about an a, a charge gate or like a, a a callous raft of some sort that closes up the the pit connections no, no, it is um, these aquaporins, these, yeah. these little channels, they get phosphorylated yeah. if there is acidosis in the cells. So as okay. soon as the cells get acidic, there is this, this they're closed. And then, of course, you, you see all these other, you know, it's, it's a chain reaction. If there is no sink demand, that means if there is no carbohydrate consumption in the root or too much carbohydrate consumption in case of hypoxia, or if there is... No, no, um, no oxygen and this sugar demand increases that much. I mean, this just really drains the plant of its energy reserves very, very quickly. Well, the other thing that, that happens is that um, when you have flooding in the soil and you have hypoxia, the, the plant is unable to get any nutrients from, from bacteria that it takes into the root cells uh, because it can't get, it doesn't have oxygen to produce superoxide to extract these microbes, extract nutrients from the microbes. So you have that whole system shutting down. The other thing that, I mean, one would expect that we don't really know, but uh, to what degree do the microbes entering the root tip carry in moisture to the plant? And they may, because some of these microbes are pretty big, and so if the whole system, if they stop, you know, oxidizing the microbes, uh, uh, stop replicating the microbes, can't, can't get superoxide, 
uh, perhaps, and I don't know that this is the case, perhaps they begin to take in fewer. Certainly the root is not growing and the root has to grow to take these microbes in. So yeah. that growth stops. And so microbes stop being taken in. And that's that, I mean, that's probably not all the moisture, but that's some of the moisture is coming in with these, with these microbes that, uh, that, are, that these plants are consuming. I actually, I also think there is one more to that. So yeah. if you take up microbes into the cell, you decrease the surface and you increase the volume of the cell. That you means do. you increase yeah. pressure of this cell. Yeah. And this needs to go somewhere. Yeah. So if this is a process that is coordinated at the root tip, and the root yeah. length increases with this, in, you know, the, yeah. the question is, how is this pressure relaxed? Either the whole root is expanding, this would do it, or you have root hair coming out, or maybe this also drives pressure gradients that push liquid up into the transport system. And the interesting thing is that if the water goes into shortage, moderate shortage, yeah. we see um, oscillations of what transport. It's like the plant starts to puff. You know, <laughs> there is water coming out and and it's stopping. And this is there is models that say, oh yes, this is only because um, regulatory circuits and you know, kind of trying to get a standard value maintained. And so it's just a bit more and a bit less evaporation. So you see these oscillations, but maybe we see another mechanism at work that really starts at the root. And the interesting bit is that before this water transport starts, you see a potential, an electric potential running. So there is first the signal, then you have stomatal opening and then the water comes for evaporation again it's far more complex than the idea okay we open the shutter and then we just evaporate through the leaf the whole plant just is coordinating this water transport well there's another phenomenon that might play a role in um in helping the plant to prevent loss of water i mean under a different Circum under dry circumstances, and this is different. Uh, the the one effect is that because the microbes are there on the outside of the root, and and going into the root, obviously, but on the but on the outside, you know, you get this a lot of exudates that happen all around the root, and that those microbes hold a lot of moisture, and prevent and actually make a gradient so that you have, you know, you have a high concentration in the root, then you have this gradient that goes out into this, to this rhizosheath area, right? That with moisture there, that, that gradient and that thickening of moisture zone around the root prevents roots from drying out very readily, very fast. It slows that desiccation, right? So even if you have dry soils, the the rhizosheath with lots of microbes and you get more of these rhizosheaths when you have more microbes there more because all this comes from exudates essentially but um that that also preserves the moisture in the in the root and 
Yeah, the moisture stress, that's the other, the or the lack of moisture, the desiccation stress with uh, plants becoming more stress tolerant, they're actually hardier for for that, for the for the for the dryness, the desiccation. So they have more, you know, being oxidative with microbes going into the root cells, the cells upregulate their antioxidants and oxidative stress genes. And, and then they're more resistant, hardier to desiccation. So you have that other effect. Same thing probably to flooding and cold. Yeah, Oliver, well, so sorry. Just before we go deeper into to this aspect of drought, I wanted to maybe have a follow-up question about this waterlogging idea, because what we're talking about essentially is an anaerobic situation. That lock, the lack of oxygen is what is preventing the uptake of water can this happen in other circumstances of anaerobic conditions in the soil, such as compaction or basically anywhere where there's not adequate oxygen at the root level? Or does this really just, we see it when, when soil gets waterlogged? You wanna talk about it, Harriet? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, compaction is, is a real problem there. Because if compaction kind of, it prevents this this whole cycle around the root so the root um cuts back the amount of exudate because it's not consumed and if it's consumed oxygen is a problem because compacted soil warm high microbial activity is the worst and then really these plants they they have a problem with conductance they don't push the water through from the root right up where it should be evaporated. And it is when it's very often the figure you find in literature is that compaction costs you around a third of your yield, something like that. I think it's even more. Wow. Because you have all this hidden aspect of aluminum toxicity in the soil. And I wasn't really aware of that topic for, for a while because it doesn't show up in the shoot as causative problem. You just see the plant is kind of slowing down, it's producing later, the yield is smaller, nutrition is bad. But basically in the plant sap analysis, you don't see if the root is fighting aluminum and trying to keep it out at all means and sacrificing is phosphorus uptake just to, 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 to keep it at bay and shooting out oxalate to make complexes. I mean, this is a huge drain of energy where it just doesn't take up anything. And you don't see it in the plant sap at that stage, neither in a tissue analysis of the shoot because it just doesn't reach there. And if it reaches there, that's really, really, then it's too late basically. So what you see is a drop in nutrient uptake. And what you see is slow growing plants. And if it's really bad, what you see is dead apices from, from the plant root so that they don't elongate properly, that they just brown then if it's really bad, then it's gone, <laughs> the problem, then, then it really, you can't do anything about it anymore. That's the aluminum toxicity? Yeah. 
And if I understood correctly from the previous interview, one of the reasons why aluminum is able to get into the plants is because they've been force-fed nitrogen, which basically leaves the uptake mechanism for water like wide open. And it's normal defenses that would prevent it from being absorbed into the plant are basically overcome through that force feeding. Plus, if all mechanisms to defend itself are breached, if there is just no more oxalate to be wasted, there is no more phenolics that can be done, if it cannot be sequestered in the vacuoles in the root. I mean, the plant really is very ingenious about keeping it out and it has no rather she's around the root of microbes that really sequester. I mean, many, many microbes, they just have the aluminum sticking on their coats basically and keeping it out of the plant. So there is many, many barriers, but if all these are exhausted and you then force the plant to take up material, then you will get aluminum, of course, in the plant as we have seen with soybean from Brazil with these big problems where they said, oh man, we have aluminum levels in the soybeans that are so high, why? And what was the situation, uh, why they had them? What was the answer? We have soils there that are high in aluminum and that are acidic. So they have been limed and then heavy use of chemicals. So compaction and in the end, it must have happened what I've just described. So the, the soybeans just have taken the aluminum up and it has ended up in the bean. This, the soil then above the hard pan, the hard pans must be accumulating the, a lot of aluminum there. And uh, I mean, maybe even there, because that hard pan is dry and it almost is a, an area that uh, the roots can't penetrate and uh, you know, so there's no filtration down through the soil layers, right? It's just stuck kind of right there. So it could make the exacerbate the problem, make it even make it even worse. Yeah, higher, I have higher, not higher been there. Than... I haven't seen it. But what I can say from literature is that the soils there that have been clear from the vegetation have had a high level of mobile aluminum already. So basically to make them um, suitable for soybeans, they have been limed heavily to be suitable at all. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. And then, of course, if you put um, soybeans on there that are um, high performance varieties that do not have all this microbial um, communication and, and how do you say that? Um, they're, not, they're not really... They're yeah. only trained for for microbial use. A lot of these are, they're aren't they? Uh, well, they don't. They're not using nitrogen fertilizer, or they they're using nodules, right? Aren't they rhizobia? Isn't that isn't that correct? I have no idea how they do it in Brazil. I would expect yeah, I them either. that they will inoculate it, but with think. rhizobia. But yeah, I, would, I have yeah. I have no idea in of the in depth topic at this spot there. So. I, I don't yeah. want to stretch my competence either. here. <laughs> yeah. But I what I, I have seen, what I have seen here is very often is that old varieties have a very big spectrum 
of communication competence with microbes. Some of them are very good, some of them are not so good, and some of them perform really bad with, um, with compaction, for example, some tolerate it very well. So there is in, 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 in all varieties, there is a whole spectrum of either competence or not. <laughs> <laughs> you know? well, so, but what I see is that the modern varieties, they really, actually, I think probably this compaction topic is why modern agriculture is married so much to nitrate. Because when we have compaction and we add nitrate, basically the microbes can reduce the nitrate, which gives the plant a bit of a reaction time when waterlogging sets in. So that the nitrate actually is not what gets into the plant all the time, but it's just used by the microbes as a waste bin, basically, when oxygen is not available. You know, it's it's interesting uh, what you and other people, when, whenever I talk to groups, uh, uh, always ask the question, uh, could we be losing the capacity to use microbes as, an, as a nutrient source? Uh, and, and and other basically plant microbes, you know, for everything that they need these microbes for, could these modern varieties be losing it? And it kind of goes to the exactly what you said, the idea that you said that uh, that uh, these some of these modern cultivars are not really. I mean, I I use the the word the wording trained. They're not really trained, adapted to use microbes anymore. We're kind of because they're bred under conditions where they're, where they're not using those microbiology instead they're using uh, chemical fertilizers. And uh, you know, that brings the topic up of, um, of uh, nuclear plant nucleus colonization by some of these microbes, you know, that, uh, that these, uh, and I, I, I tell you the situation that I'm, I'm, we're working in my lab with a plant breeder, Walter Goldstein, who's been trying to breed organic corn. And uh, uh, we're, we're trying to help him to do that. And uh, he's in Mandaman Institute in Wisconsin. But Walter told him a couple of things that really are exciting. And one thing is that, uh, that his corn varieties with the nitrogen fixing microbes in them, and these are microbes now from these land races, you know, in Peru and Mexico, that were, they, people don't put nitrogen on them at all. And uh, this land-raised corn, and he bred them in to modern corn. And uh, uh, what he's seeing is they're high in methionine. They're really high in methionine. Uh, and that presumably that's from nitrogen fixation. It happens to be an, an antioxidant form of amino acid, but they're high in that. And the other, uh, uh, the, the other thing he's noticing is when, when he tries to put genes in to the corn that'll limit outcrossing, that that because they're trying to make he's trying to make it so that that this nitrogen fixing corn won't hybridize accidentally with some of the of the of the modern hybrids uh, that have been transformed, you know, for a glyphosate resistant, right? Uh, so he puts them in and what happens is they keep looting and another breeder, same thing, said who he's working with says as soon as he puts these genes in, they're there, then they disappear, they disappear, 
and uh, it is amazing. But it 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 uh, it made me think right away when he said that that this methionine, because methionine is that I think is one of the amino acids I think that'll silence genes. It gets over you know in a silence uh, expression of certain genes. So the, the these endophytes. The other observation is these bacteria go into the, they have a, a stage where they go into the nuclear envelope. What we think is that because they enter at the meristem where the cells are dividing, so they go in there. And at that time, the nuclear envelope is dispersed, right? The nucleus is not surrounded. It's just DNA kind of out there dividing. But when they reform the nucleus, the bacteria get caught in the, between the layers of the nuclear envelope because that's where we see them. And so we can actually see them moving out from there. But if, if they're that close to the DNA, then it may be easy for this genetic interchange to be happening between the corn plant or whatever plant it is and the microbe. And so there could be some genes turning off, genes turning on, and Walter even told me that in his nurseries where he made these crosses, he's seeing new traits that are appearing in these plants with where he's transformed, where he moved, where he moved endophytes into. That, and uh, they, they look like they're, there's new traits forming. So he says these corn plants are evolving in the breeding nurseries uh, year after year without him doing anything to them. It's really interesting, the idea that there could be this genetic manipulation, that these microbes may be, uh, the microbes may be, and the plant may be partnering little by little and changing to in that partnership, you know, which is kind of where you started. And you said that uh, some varieties don't seem to, don't, don't, uh, are not, as capable at dealing with soil microbiology. And this may be what we're talking about. What Walter, this corn breeder, is, is observing in his breeding nurseries and his experiments. Really interesting idea. It's a new idea. Well, actually, I have seen such a high plasticity when I was working with heirlooms and microbial inoculation. Yeah such a high plasticity that didn't go along at all with traditional genetic um, ideas. So of course, you know, the first thing that you look at is, oh, we have epigenetics at work here. And then you think, well, is it just communication? Then you see these reports that microbes delay or advance flowering time. And the problem is that it's very hard to fiddle all these factors apart and to say, okay, this was the microbe and this was the way the microbe changed the soil or this was the way the exudate did this or that. So in the end, I just sit there and I say, okay, I see recurring phenomena. I see new phenomena. I see that, for example, um, the first thing is I always grew up thinking that Eggplant just make one first genuine leaf. Tomatoes make two and peppers usually make two, but eggplant just make one. And then was the first year where the eggplant was so well off that they just made two. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. This is interesting. Why? And this year, 
I have seen the first eggplant that make a branching just coming out of the cotyledos with two vegetation points. And it's a variety that was doing the years before it was just making two leaves. And now it makes actually two tips. So we have had very often this discussion of yield limits of plants. And seeing these changes in architecture, I think there is basically no yield limit of plant architecture. Because if you can make new shoot tips right from the cotyledo, from the first possible spot, and then have side branches coming out, it's like tillering. I mean, there is no, no limitation to how large the frame of a plant could possibly get. And I attribute this definitely to the combination of the habituation of the plant to the microbes. Sometimes it's very fast. Sometimes it happens in one, gen one generation. Sometimes it takes some generations to happen. It probably is better mineral nutrition. And I think it has to do a lot with the soil organic matter in, this, in the type. So if there is a lot of soluble nutrients, high electric conductivity, if it's too high, this seems to be not so good. And if you have a soil that has a large capacity to, to hold on to stuff and has a good nutrition in it, and the microbes can deal it out, this seems to be where some heirlooms do really funky things, where you think, <laughs> this is crazy. I mean, I have had last year, I had the first pumpkins with female flowers just in the side shoots. Same thing as I just said about the eggplant, female flowers and the side shoots coming from the cotyledo. So not even one crown flower, but several. I mean, they were fooled. They were just an environment that was just too good to be true. So they couldn't make a pumpkin actually, but the potential is there. So what That's do you think? Thing. So what do you think about the idea that the microbes uh, near the nucleus may be influencing expression of genes in that plant nucleus. Why not? I mean, if they can sit around the root and produce phytohormones like ethylene that does things, yeah. why shouldn't they be able to do it when they're sitting close to the nucleus? Oh, yeah, so we covered <laughs> a whole bunch right there. I just want to bring it back so that I can catch up. We started with this idea that modern plants or seeds are bred to laboratory standards that are possibly compromising their ability to pair or work with the microbiome in the soil in order to become more self-sufficient and rather they're they're bred to be reliant on the chemical products that they are often paired with in recommendations from agronomists or from the seed company themselves and then james you you mentioned the crossbreeding between land races from other places and how this may actually be able to reactivate that cooperative nature of these otherwise uh, genetically modified or or bred to to be independent of the microbiome seeds and can actually reactivate that we went then into <laughs> how bacteria can perhaps infiltrate the nucleus of the cells to give expression to different genetic traits which could perhaps be turned on and off through some sort of epigenetic mechanisms. Where, what are the implications of this? Like, 
is this kind of paired with a recommendation that perhaps we should be going back to original or adapted seeds for your for your environment I, if you're I, trying I, to reduce inputs and and become less dependent on these these chemicals i think harriet said it and that yeah. is the implication the implication one implication is that perhaps if we begin to breed plants with the microbes in mind, the limits of where of yield might uh, be much reduced. You know, we're with nitrogen, you know, we're, we're at a certain limit in yield and, and, and quality. Uh, but if, but if, if we started to, you know, as a, as a culture, uh, scientists and plant breeders and growers, farmers, everybody, basically, we started to look at the microbiology, we might find that we could push plants even beyond the level of chemical fertilizer and all the chemistry. It, 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 if, we begin to, if we begin to kind of go down this route, uh, that's, I mean, that's what I, that's what I take, take away from the you know, one of the big li limitations. We basically don't know how far we could go if we start looking at the biology. We just don't know. So you mean to say these sort of industrially produced seeds have promised better yields and perhaps more consistency out in the field up to a point, but that this route is only gonna get us so far, but the real potential is actually in the symbiotic relationships of what can be expressed when properly paired with the microbiology in the soil? I think I think that's what I'm saying. I think, uh, Harriet, what do you think? <laughs> I think that the two systems don't mix well. This is this is the thing when you start experimenting with heirloom varieties and microbes, and you go into a field that's got run over with heavy machinery, then you will not see miracles, but a disaster. So. If you want to get your hands on land-raised breeding and really to, to work with these old materials, you have to overcome a couple of things. One is they are very often a bunch of misbehaved rascals because they do not have they have not been selected for a long time properly. So you really need to work with them and select them for the purpose you want them under the conditions you want to have them. That means if you want to work with microbes, they need to be part of the team right from the beginning. And they need to have the conditions that they can do the job. So if we have the look at endophytes that can fix nitrogen in the leaves, very often you see, for example, leaf hairs and all these things really being expressed from a certain point of metabolic wealth of the plant. So if nutrition is very poor, the plant has paper thin leaves and, and everything is not well established that it can host microbes properly. And if the plant gets really wealthy, you see, for example, in the leaf that they have the same architecture as leaves that are called sun leaves. You have several layers of assimilating parenchyma in there. You have a lot less sponge parenchyma in there. They are very thick. And you can feel it. If you have them between your fingers, they're really thick leaves. And this is a difference for a microbe. If it's sitting in a leaf that's paper thin with 
oscillating conditions and, and big problems, or if it's sitting there nice and comfy in this thick leaf. So it's much more constant conditions. So I would just, if I can interject just for a second, uh, the thick leaves, I talked about the Walter telling me about uh, the plants evolving in the nurseries with new traits. One of the traits is the leaves get really thick yeah. And they begin to they begin to actually wrinkle a little bit. They're so thick. And you see the this kind of a creasing on the leaves, bigger leaves with some creasing in them. Yeah. It it really is exactly what you say. That's exactly what we're seeing in these uh land race uh nitrogen with lots of nitrogen fixing these hybrids from the land race corn yeah. it uh, we're seeing exactly what you're describing yeah it really it really is interesting the whole and especially changes. yeah especially this this these are the changes that i see over and over again yeah. so and it's not just this what is this craft that's this waxy layer no it's the whole leaf architecture that starts to change when the plant gets I call it really happy, you know, where it has good root system, good nutrition. But of course, if you have large machinery and you compact the ground, I mean, sorry, no, it will not work. And it doesn't work. I have seen it many times in my innocence where I thought I can just pop it somewhere in my not so good ground and it just doesn't work. It just fails utterly. And then you think, huh, heirlooms, what is shit? I don't want to work with this. So if you really want to go down that rabbit hole and work with it, then you need to take care that nutrition is appropriate. I mean, of course, microbes do a good job extracting nutrients from the parent material if they can. But if the parent material is quartz sand, you need to subsidize all that what has been lost with the soil organic matter that has been burned in the last 50 years. So the loss of soil organic matter and the restoration of soil organic matter is not the same process because when you lose it at the same time, you lose all the nutrition that was hanging onto it. It leaches. And then when you start building it back up, it can be just an empty fridge. You have the fridge there, the, the carbon skeleton, but there is not much nutrition in it mineral wise. So to really get that system flying again you need to make a subsidy in the beginning of what's missing in terms of trace elements or whatever and then then you see very quickly these big architectural changes in the plants and also it's not a matter of several generations it can be really quickly in one two generations you see a large plasticity and i was really surprised by that me, me too me too i'm, I'm <laughs> So because I have been exploring a lot this topic of land race gardening and, and plant selection and breeding and the promise that has been made through some of the people who are teaching this is that well first of all heirlooms are not the same as land race breeds in that they've often reached a genetic dead end they've been inbred to a point where yeah okay they're true that type but they are they have their own weaknesses built in because they've just been replicated in that certain way and that rather maybe starting with some higher quality seeds that haven't come from, let's say, uh, dead end F1 hybrids or large industrial facilities that still have some of the original genetics and starting to select over a period of time means that rather than having to 
amend and alter the conditions in which you're growing, you can start to select for the genetics that are going to adapt to that place without having to do all of that work. I mean, you've both done a lot of work with this. Is this what you've seen? Is that so far I'm on the right track or is it more complex? Well, basically it is what I said, take a genetic and select it under the conditions that you want to maintain. But if you want to see wonders, then get a good aggregated soil, make a mineral investment credit in the beginning, put microbes there and have plants that are capable of communicating. Because for example, looking at dwarfed wheat, the communication with mycorrhizae is hampered. So the more dwarfed these varieties are, apparently the worse is the communication with the mycorrhizae. So you say, hmm, I'm going to quit now. I'm going to go low input. And you stick to these wheat varieties. This is not an ideal starting point, even if you combine two, three, or five of them. So I have seen very often what we were talking about with heirlooms that are really degenerated because of too small a gene pool that they have been maintained with. And this is a problem. This is a big problem. And also is a problem that very often people work a bit with them, give them back into a gene bank or whatever it is, and then they lose interest. And then the next person comes along, they're taken out of the drawer, they're replicated ones. And, oh, well, it doesn't work really well. Well, I collect some seeds, I give it back. And this is a problem. This is what I said. There are very often a bunch of misbehaved rascals. So in this case, what can work is just take, if it's an outbreeder, take two or three of these bottlenecked populations, put them together and see what comes up. And then keep working with what you like. So that's fun. Yeah, it is. You know, the, the, uh, just to put this another way, uh, the, the plants from Walter's nursery that, that he made uh, keep, they keep silencing these genes that limit outcrossing, right? That limit genetic crossing. So it's, and, and you know, kind of combining with this, this variation that we start seeing in the in the plants it makes it it makes it seem as if the plants with these microbes you know uh, the system wants to evolve it's like it's designed now with the microbes there to actually evolve and adapt to the environment you know which comes with this land race idea adapting to a particular environment right but it it, it seems they because because they're either kicking out these genes that limit uh, outcrossing, or they're or they're silencing those genes. So they're they're removing the limits to that hybridization, that crossing. And uh, you know we don't understand the mechanism. Obviously we don't know. We're only, but uh, it is something that's very different that's going on that you don't see in these highly selected 
hybrids like the dwarf wheat, which is one of those, you know, plants that is uh, selected uh, during the green revolution, right, to produce uh, uh, more and more yield, but they're they're all nitrogen pushed pushed with chemical fertilizers. So that those are the kind of plants where where you see you know no variation. There's not much variation, like you said. They're doing they're doing they're doing a specific thing. They probably have all kinds of genes turned off, mm-hmm. you know, to do everything, you know, to get nutrients from microbes to, you know, whatever exit from exudates from connecting to mycorrhizae, but probably, probably other, they're probably not connecting very well with the microbiology at all. And so, you know, you, you, well, anyways, the point, point being the ones with microbes seem to want to evolve. I mean, it's funny to say that, but that's almost, you know, to say that it kind of, uh, you know, uh, that that's, that's what it appears, right? Uh, as, as if there's a proclivity, a pro uh, towards uh, crossing and towards variation that you don't see in these highly selected hybrids. Adaptation in general. Adaptation in general, yeah, they're 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 better at adapting. This this is really the point that I want to make in in defense of this old genetic materials because. Yeah they always keep surprising me <laughs> when I think, ha, now I know you, now I know how you behave. Now I know what I'm going to do. And, you know, I'm sure that they come up with something that I've not thought before last year, for example, in, in November roots started to come back out of the earth from some brassicas. And then they were running on top of the earth with very long root hair, about a centimeter, and they were condensing moisture. That was what I could see. And when there was a kernel of gypsum, I just put, I just threw a handful of gypsum there, like pills. They would come up like a little mushroom, you know, and <laughs> explore this it. gypsum, get it. Hmm. So you sit there and you think, what are they doing? Roots are not supposed to be anti-gravity, go out of the soil, be on the ground, full of root hair, eating gypsum off the surface of the ground. I mean, this is ridiculous. But they did it. And not just one here and there, it was a patch of maybe four to four meters. And every bed was showing this. So they can they can do many more things that we expect. And what I see as a thread in scientific literature that really worries me is many, many papers where a mechanism is just discovered is like, oh, we should outsmart this because this doesn't make sense. We can do better. We can improve photosynthetic efficiency. We can um, design roots that keep on growing without phosphate because if they stop, if there's no phosphate available, okay, we just modify them so they keep on growing. And for me, it's just the other way around because I think there is so much wisdom in these regulatory systems under conditions that actually suited the plant once. So I do not feel well knocking them out because I know I pay in five other places that I'm not aware of a fee for knocking that out. For example, if I have a plant that makes a very steep and reduced root system in high nitrate conditions and it just doesn't want 
I know I'm anthropomorphizing here. It's, it has had enough nitrogen, nitrate in it. So it reduces the root system. What is the point forcing it to take up more nitrate? We're getting pest susceptibility. We get bitterness. We get problems in the consumer. But this is this thinking. I mean, I have been annoyed about my plans many times too. But the thing is that I thought, okay, I haven't probably given them the right conditions or I haven't selected them the right way I should have done. And this is a work too. But basically, I think that it's wise to trust in the resilience and in the adaptability that the plants bring along because they know every day how to adjust their leaves into the sun. They know how to... Um, regulate internode um, distance and all these things so that they shade or don't shade or whatever. And I think it's wrong to, to prescribe them the angles that the leaves have to be held and all this. This is so stiff and it means in turn that we have to provide them such super constant conditions to perform that we simply cannot provide especially not this, with climate change. This is really our arrogance, really. Uh, and you see, you see it, uh, how, how we dissect nature into parts, you know, to the physical little bits. And then we think, we think that we can improve on it. And we do that uh, by altering the genome in some way. And uh, I mean, it seems really, oh, oh, it's so great, you know, that we can do this, right? It's so great that we can do it. it wonderful but it, it's an arrogance it's like we know we think we know how everything works and the truth is we don't we don't they don't we all collectively don't understand it that's that's the problem with the way we operate we never would have i mean i don't think we would have gone down the way of of putting fertilizers all over the environment uh, if we had perfect knowledge about how plants work or about what those fertilizers would have done to our environment or any agrochemicals how they would hurt certain ones would hurt people you know but it, our air our human arrogance you know we are we have dominion over the over the earth and so we're going to do we know what's best and so we're going to do it but it it's, it's an, a prime example of where humans are not as, we're not as smart as we think we are. I mean, we're very smart, don't get me wrong. We're very smart. And some of us who can do all the great things, they're really, really smart, you know, but uh, we don't know everything. And uh, nature is highly sophisticated and has discovered ways to do things very efficiently that uh, we don't even, we can't even fathom now. Oliver, you should hear uh, Harriet and me on some of the discussions, uh, either by email or in person. It's, uh, it, it just knocks, I mean, it might, knocks my socks off every time. <laughs> I'd love to be I a file over those conversations, I, absolutely. I learned some, I learned new things that I never ever imagined. You know, well, that, that's why and, these uh, discussions are so important, right? The yeah. oh, communication yeah. between people who are passionate about subjects, who are on the edge of the yeah. understanding and the research and the different areas that they're passionate about, and then being able to share those together. 
Well, and what you were talking about too, about this arrogance reminds me of a parable that really stuck with me. There's a, you know, a young farmer goes up to an old farmer and they're at the edge of the property and he sees a fence. He's like, well, this fence isn't doing anything. We don't have animals in this area. There's nothing to keep out. Uh, can I take out this fence? And the older farmer says, okay, I'm going to ask you to take some time and think about this and observe. And when you can tell me why this fence was put in and what it was for, then I'll let you take it out if you still want to. And that's very much the case of what we're talking about, about the genetic expression of these plants. It's like, okay, it's there for a reason, just because we don't understand, just because we came to a new conclusion about it, does not mean that it is useless or that it doesn't serve a function, perhaps in conditions that we have not observed it in yet. And to just start to tinker with it, especially if it comes to taking it out, we can you know, really cause problems. Unfortunately, we're still in a position where there is access to old genetic material of land-raised plants, heirloom plants. Uh, it, it, there've been some major efforts to preserve this. And, and we can still start to reverse some of the, the dead ends that we've started to go down with genetic tinkering and, and breeding of plants. But it also makes me think that, or at least the, the, what I'm getting from what keeps coming up in this discussion is that if someone, a farmer, is making a big effort to improve their land management practices, to decompact their soil, to add organic matter, to favor microbes, to bring in uh, biodiversity, that perhaps one of the key steps that will help them in this attempt would be to source seed that is compatible to these changes that they're trying to make rather than source it from the same places that are really only conducive to the compacted, nutrient deficient, microbe devoid conditions that they were, they were bred to thrive in. Would, is, am I on the right track there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, of course, hybrids, some of them that I've worked with, happily adopted another strategy. It is not that they do not respond and that all hybrids are bad. I mean, basically, if you cho choose two dead end heirlooms and you bastardize them, you're creating a hybrid, you know, so it's not that I want to sit here and say, "Ooh, hybrids are doomed and all that, you know. But basically, I mean, if you have a system that is designed to rely on the use of herbicides and that is designed to knock back microbiology on, on purpose as a fixed inventory of the system, then it's probably better to have genetics that are adapted to that. And if you do not intend to work like this, but you want to go low input and wean your soils, then it's maybe smarter to work with something else or start to select them from hybrids that you like. Also very possible. And what you might have heard when I was talking about the pumpkins before, sometimes you fool transplant in, into conditions that later your soil doesn't live up to. And the first thing that they will do is throw away their flowers and you know, do all these things. Okay, for example, when we were talking about drought, the flower is the structure of a plant that cannot be sealed. 
because it must be open for pollination. So this structure is the open gate for evaporation. And then, for example, in a drought situation, you see two different strategies. A perennial plant, if it gets really stressed, it will just throw away the flowers for survival. If you have an annual plant, if it has passed a certain tipping point, it will just hang on to it and emergency reproduce to get out of this nasty spot. It just has to live. So if it's very early, this stress happens, it will kind of try to get rid of the flowers. But once it has passed this tipping point, it would just really hang on to the fruit and just develop whatever is possible to get away from there. And these things, these behaviors in terms of drought response are again influenced by the microbiome. And here I want to make a case for actinomycetes. Very often people are not friendly with actinomycetes anymore. And they say, no, they are bad bacteria and, and too much and we want fungi. Actually, actinomycetes can give a good drought resilience to plants if they are around the roots. So do not go fungal only. You need a bacterial base to put the fungi on top yeah, I would, I would agree. The fungi, um, you, you really can't go fungus only because without those bacteria there, those certain of the fungi would eat up the plant. That's one, one issue. The, the, uh, there is an interaction in the soil between fungi and bacteria. And uh, the, the bacteria affect the fungi, alter their virulence, alter their growth. Sometimes they kill them, but usually they don't kill them. Uh, but they do affect them. They go in and they get nutrients from them. And then, and then you have, so you have this, this, if you have more fungi there, you know, they're going to be able to degrade, or, degrade organic material and, uh, and, and then get some nutrients there. The bacteria will colonize those fungi, colonize the hyphae. Sometimes they actually will go inside the hyphae in a lot of these fungi. And then they'll go back out and they'll move to the plant too. So you get this cross movement. So really there is an interaction between fungi and bacteria and plants in the soil. And if you have anything, if you remove anything from the system, uh, you de-optimize the way that that system functions. And so you really, you really have to have all, if you have only bacteria, you don't get as many nutrients because the bacteria aren't as good at getting nutrients out of organic material. If you, if you have not enough bacteria, the fungi will, they'll degrade the organic material and uh, you eat up your organics in the soil and they'll also attack the plants and kill the plants to get nutrients. So it, it is a, the system has to be balanced. You have to, yeah. you have to have a balance in the system and uh, yeah. I, I want to say one real quick thing relating to Oliver to what you said about people are not not wise enough. Like the idea you had the farmer and the new guy come in and the, wanted to take something out on the farm, right? You have to understand it. Well, my nephew, my brother's uh, one of my brother's sons, actually said something. He got it from somewhere else. I don't know, but I was amazed at how smart my nephew was. But he said he said this. He said that people are like gods without wisdom you know 
we we are we're really smart and we could figure a lot of things out but we don't really have the whole picture we don't really have wisdom to understand you know what we're doing yeah we could do something but should we do it and what are the impacts what is it going to do you know yeah we we have dominion over the earth but we screwing it up pretty bad and it's a it's an interesting place to kind of segue there i've often thought about this like there is a huge overemphasis in our global culture in general. I mean, this may not relate to some indigenous cultures, but uh, on, on the building of intellectual capacity above all else, and just knowing how things work, having all of the information. But like you said, the, the wisdom is needed to know or to, to intuit how to apply it when to back off and not apply it or where it is appropriate, you know, um, and how to, like you said, see the larger picture and see the connections and know when, you know, to take your hands off as well. And I think that's something as a culture we're, we're terrible at so far. Yeah. So I'm hoping that, you know, perhaps through resources like this and through increased conversations that I'm able to have, but also to learn and ask questions broadly that we can hopefully start to collectively build the wisdom that can give appropriate applications to the immense knowledge we have access to. And also just be humble about the knowledge that we will probably never have, or certainly don't yet, that could be the crucial missing piece to actually applying our knowledge in inappropriate ways. Well, <laughs> that was a little bit heavy, but <laughs> I think we covered a whole lot <laughs> on this. Uh, on this deep dive, I hope we can do it again and perhaps even bring some some more voices in here. This was incredibly enriching. And even though we got you know over my head a few times, you both did a fantastic job about bringing it back and explaining it in ways that I could kind of you know make some sense of it and and make some connections about how this would influence perhaps management decisions on the land or what someone could do with this information, which is always a tricky part. And I really want to thank you for that. Um, so would either of you like to list some resources or contact information for people to reach out to you and to learn more, maybe starting with James? Well, I mean, I would, uh, I would recommend, uh, it's on a popular level, I would recommend the book Teeming with Bacteria uh, by Jeff Lowenfels. And uh, this, is a, this is a book that came out, I think it was uh, I don't know if this, early this year came out. I yeah, think. it's part of his ongoing series, right? Yeah, he has one series, yeah. Teeming with yeah. microbes, teeming with nutrients, teeming yeah. with something else. And fungi. Uh, uh, well, the, yeah. Teeming with fungi. And now the, the new one is Teeming with Bacteria, the Organic Gardener's Guide to Endophytic Bacteria and the Rhizophagy Cycle. And Jeff Lowenfels. And uh, that that's that's a good source. I, I would, the main source, I think, entryway. There's some articles out there that you could access and you'll find those in time uh, having to do with rhizophagy cycle and endophytes. But uh, I think that book is a good place to start for, for everybody, to be honest. Jeff Lohenfels did a great job in that book and uh, I recommend it all the time. Nice. Um, I'm paying you for that pitch. That was a really good recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, he's, he promised to give me a hat. You can see this hat is wearing go. out. I have a I have a hat teeming with microbes. Uh, he promised this morning. He I sent him an email and he promised to give me a new hat. He said he, he would said he would give me a shirt too, 
but I, but I, but I told them I, I'm not into shirts, but the hat I'm into. Give me oh, that's one. worthwhile. I'm going to reach out to him and see if I can get in on a hat deal as well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Super. Yeah. And and Harriet, how can uh, our listeners reach out to you and learn more? To me. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um. I I hope to prepare some more user friendly modules this year for learning about water compaction um and inoculation methods i just made um little journey through different methods how to to inoculate microbes because i actually i think that just using black box approaches in kind of isolating something from nature from certain spots and um starting it and bringing it out there it's doing a fantastic change and it doesn't have to be that you are in the lab and you say oh it's stenotrophomonas something that i put on there i I really think that it's more about communities and actually what i would love to be more widely known is the books of um annie francais for her um case that she makes that we should have parent material dissolving microbes as foundation and algae in the so- in the soil and what i can see is that she's so right so right if we want to go low input agriculture this is really old stuff and most of this is german some things are or have been translated into english so i really would love this to be more widely known and applied of course <laughs> and also what I would like to see more is um, heirlooms as land races or as pure varieties out in the field and not in the gene bank. Because mm-hmm. conditions are changing and they need to be out there to keep up with this change. And if they sit in the gene bank for 200 years and then you put them out, okay, maybe you're lucky, but it's better if they're out there and they are you know, keep up with what's happening. So start with it, play with it. It doesn't have to be a large acreage. It just can be a little corner where you play with it and see what happens. Because if you change cultural practices, they will show it. They will show the change pretty quickly if you're on the right track. And you see immense changes in in plant health and yield. So this yeah. is this is a good teacher to have. <laughs> this has given me a lot more to to look into, and perhaps we can reach out to uh, the woman you mentioned, the author, and then and make some of her information available here too. And you know, much like you said, these these seeds, they're not meant to be relics in a museum, right? This is living genetics. These are crops. This is food, and it's not doing you much good if it's just sitting on a shelf somewhere. Well, look, that's a fantastic place to leave it off for now. I really look forward to hopefully doing this again before too long. It's been a pleasure talking to both of you. I appreciate your time. I'll make sure all of these links get on the show notes for this episode. And I'll catch you on the next one. Goodbye. Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. Take care, guys. All right, thanks once again to Harriet and James. I'll be putting all the links to the resources that they mentioned in the show notes for this episode on the website at regenerativeskills.com. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, designing coaching services, 
in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.